is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. It's WTF Bach here, Evan Shinners. Here's an idea. It's a Christmas ornament, okay, for your tree, shaped like an ornament. Get it? As in a musical ornament. Here, honey, I got you a double mordant for Christmas. Want to be fun these holidays? I tell you, someone will hear this, though, make it and steal it and make millions. Maybe you. But I had this idea, since I'm in the middle of working up a bigger episode, that in the meantime, I'd actually play the table of ornaments for you. Sounds like a crazy idea, right? Play the table of ornaments? Have you ever heard the table of ornaments? Do you even know what the table of ornaments is? Do you even know what an ornament is? Well, in German, they are Fitzierungen, and in French, they are Les Agréments. And in English, they are ornaments. They all mean nothing different from the very ornaments which we hang on Christmas trees, which are, in fact, decorations. I would say mere decorations, because the tree is the structure. The musical notes are the structure. But on top of that structure, and indeed what separates the amateur decorator from the artist, are the ornaments. How and where do you place ornaments? If you open up a piece of box music, for example, or most music from the Baroque or earlier, you see musical notes, but over them you see these squiggles, these little uh, scratches, you know, doodles. And to people just beginning to read music, or depending, in fact, on how old the music, even to professional musicians, some of these squiggles might look like, well, incomprehensible scratches or doodles. And so that's why we get these tables of ornaments, like keys on a map that tell you how to play these squiggles. When we think of Baroque architecture or painting, or for that matter, probably furniture or clothing, though I don't really know anything about that, we imagine all these little details bursting out everywhere. At all sides, just little flowers, cherubs, plants, details everywhere, and actually physically small details. And that's not terribly different from music. There are so many really fast, very small, very quick notes in the Baroque. It's perhaps one of the reasons why I like Baroque music so much, these small details. Because when I think, and now I'm just shooting from the hip, when I think about other forms of music I'm really passionate about, there's, say, Indian classical music and Celtic music, those forms of music too are bursting with these little thrills, and they seem to be an indispensable part of their music. When you hear a great artist, someone like um, Seamus Ennis, for example, when you hear him pick up the Julian pipes and play even the simplest of phrases, even just, you know, two notes, you realize it's not, not quite so simple after all. Between those two notes is virtually exploding with, with uh, you know, 20 smaller notes. Okay, back to the table of the ornaments. So in the 16th century, we have loads of treatises people writing on how to basically make music more exciting, how to excite the listener, right? These are early treatises on, on how to play, how to sing. And then starting in uh, the 17th century, around 1670, with a French composer named Chambonnière, 15 years before Bach is born, Chambonnière includes in his printed music a table of ornaments, and this becomes more or less the standard for French musicians when they publish music. So you've got 
tables of ornaments from uh, Couperin, for example, Francois Couperin. And when you look at all of these tables of ornaments, uh, indeed, no table is complete because, again, these are these are very little things. They're hard to keep track of and how many and how slightly different they are from one another. So I've chosen here very quickly to play two tables of ornaments and find some examples in Bach's music uh, how they come up and how you apply them. So the earlier one, the earlier table is from 1689 from a French composer named Jean-Henri Dangelbert, or as the English say, Dongelbert. Dongelbert. Yes, I was told once that there was a concert of Dongelbert, and I thought there's a composer named Dongelbert. It's De Anglebert. His table of ornaments is perhaps the most complete uh, we have, so several of his ornaments also appear in Bach's. So therefore, I'm going to play Bach's table of ornaments first. Now, Bach's table of ornaments is from 1720. You will notice that in a lot of editions of Bach's music, you will find this table of ornaments printed on the very first page or, or near the beginning, but where it comes from is it comes from the notebook that he prepared for his first son, Wilhelm Friedemann, good old WF. And what I love about this book is it's really like the no BS method book for children, for, for beginning musicians. They did not mess around in those days with colorful pictures of animals or spoon feed you uh, cleft by cleft. You know, in this notebook for Wilhelm, page one, here are all of the notes in all of the clefts. Here's how you write them in shorthand. Boom. Page two. Here's all the ornaments. And then page three, your first piece of music. That's called the applicatio, which I will come right back to because it's the application of the notes and the music. Okay, so let's go to the table of ornaments. This is from 1720. And Bach writes on the top of this, Explikation unterschiedlicher Zeichen zur gewissen Manieren artisch zu spielen andeuten. Uh, it translates something to explication of different signs so as to play certain manierung, certain, you know, whatever these are, these ornaments, to play them properly. The first one he calls trillo. Uh, it, it looks like a little, very cursive M on the top of it. Trillo. Then comes the mordant. And it's the same thing with the, with a bar slashing it in half from top to bottom. That's the mordant. Then comes the trillo und mordant, the trill and the mordant together. And it's like a three, it's like a cursive M now with three humps on it and the slash coming from top to bottom at the end. So what I'm explaining to you now is you see the shorthand version of it. And then on a separate line underneath, Bach has written out actually what this, what the, what the sign means. Okay. So here's trill and mordant. Then he has cadence. And a cadence is a sideways S. That's the best way to describe it. It's a sideways S and it sounds like. Then he's got the doubled cadence, which uh, again, it looks like the cursive M of the trilo, but there's a sort of a stem coming down from it, coming actually coming up to it. So you'll hear the musical phrase coming up to this. And then he writes idem, the same, but now the stem comes down to it. So you'll hear the musical thing doing the same. And what, what I find actually kind of wonderful about these signs is they do, to some extent, actually look like the music itself. 
if the sign looks sort of like a, you know, a, a bunch of peaks and troughs, right? And a, a sort of a line going up to it, then it will sound like. Okay, then he has the doppel cadence and the mordent. So the double cadence that we've already done plus the mordent. So you can see he's sort of adding these together. And then he writes uh, idem, the same, but coming from the other direction. Okay, then he's got the accent steigend, the rising accent, and the accent fallend. And those simply look like uh, little commas before the notes. Uh, if they come below the note, then, then it means that you have to steigend up to the note. And if, you, if it comes above the note, then you fall from the note. Uh, I'm obviously going to post this uh, in the episode description so you can see this picture in Bach's beautiful handwriting. But, uh, you know, I thought, heck, uh, why not play this? Maybe it's the first time you've ever heard this played. Okay, so then he's got the accent with the mordent. So again, it's the uh, rising, rising accent with the mordent on it. So it's the comma before the note and the M on top of the note with the slash through it, right? And then he's got the accent und trillo, so the accent with the trill. And then he writes the same thing, idem, and this is the last one. And so he's got 13, 13 little explications there. So now we'll turn to Danglebert, earlier 1689. His, his table is very complete. Uh, let me count here, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, uh, some, some 27 or 28, so it's twice as big, at least, as Bach's table. And the first, you know, the first dozen or so are very similar to Bach's. On the last line, and that's where I'm going to start on the last line, he shows you how to sort of um, arpeggiate, which, although it's all over Bach's music, is absent from Bach's table of ornaments and playing Bach or properly studying Bach, one must know the French tables of, of ornaments that uh, come down to us in Couperin and, and here Donglebert and uh, other French composers. Uh, they will show you, say, a chord, for example, like Donglebert calls a chute sur une note, the uh, chute on one note. And the chute uh, looks very similar to the accent steigend und fallend, and is, is essentially the same idea. You're stepping up to one note. But here, Donglebert writes uh, a chord. You actually see this chord here, and you have the small comma on one of the notes, and you'll notice that the, none of the notes are played at the same time. They all come like this. So the chute sur une note is like this, and the chute sur deux notes. So now you've got two sort of commas before these notes. The shoot for two notes looks like sounds like this. And then one more that I want to bring, or, or a few more that I want to bring your attention to, are um, what the French musicians do with thirds. So you see on the page, you see a um, two notes together that are printed on top of each other in, in the interval of a third. And he writes uh, this, you, you say, the coulet sur un tierce. So the, the coulet on a, on a third is, is not played together, but you actually fill it in like this. Then he says, autre. He writes the um, sort of the sign on the other side of it. And then you play it the other direction like this. And then the double chute uh, on a third. So uh, again, these are just, you see two notes on the page and a little squiggle, and then you fill it out very baroquely, like this. 
So those are a few from, from Dangelberg's um, Table of the Ornaments, 1689. And now we're going to go back to the Applicatio, which is just, you know, again, here is, it's a no BS method. Here's 10-year-old Wilhelm Friedemann learning music and page one, again, all the notes, page two, all the, all the ornaments, and then page three, here we go. We're going to have a little piece in C major, which Bach, I, I love this. I absolutely love this. He, he writes the fingerings for, uh, for the C major scale and the fingering, for those of you, the third is your middle finger, four is your ring finger. It's three, four, three, four, three, four, three, four, three, four, five, you know, so that is very different from any of you who've had keyboard lessons before, you know, you're playing with your thumb and second finger, but here in Bach, in the Baroque, it's three, four, three, four, three, four, three, four. And in the left hand, it's one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, the thumb and the, and the pointer finger. So I will play this applicatio very slowly, speaking a little bit over it. So you could hear what very well could have been uh, young Wilhelm's first piece of music that he, you know, he took his little hands on the, probably the clavichord and sat there with his patient, loving father, and learned how to become a great composer. So there's two Mordens, and now a more complicated one. That's a trill and Mordens. We hear the left hand now, doing ornaments. Okay, now we'll repeat that. Now the left hand, and some inner voices. And notice the modulation to G major. Now, second half of the piece. You'll notice a few different ornaments and a modulation to A minor there. And then this modulation to F major. Okay, let's play that again. is the first piece of music in the notebook for Wilhelm Friedman Bach, 1720, called the Applicatio, the application of learning the notes on the page with the signs, with the table of ornaments. It is prefaced by these three initials, J and J, which stand for in nomine Jesu. Uh, why the J for in nomine? Obviously has something to do with the alphabet, but I can't remember what. But yes, it just shows you what a pious man Bach was and, and how seriously he took the education of, of his eldest son. He, he would later on in his life and at other times write J.J. as in Jesu Juve, uh, help me, you know, on this quest to do what I'm about to do, which is, of course, music for the glory of God. What I love about that first piece, which could have been very well the first piece that Wilhelm Bach uh, ever looked at, Wilhelm Friedman, we say, are the modulations, uh, the fact that it's in two parts and he carefully shows his son what a sharp sign is by modulating to the, to the G major, to the five chord. And then when he gets, when he goes out of that, he uses the relative minor. So he goes to the minor mode and then he shows his son what a flat is by going to the subdominant. So he goes to, you know, two ends, two sides rather, of the circle of fifths and then swaps the mode from major to minor and then comes back. So you have in this little piece, which is, you know, I don't know, eight bars long or something like that, you've got 
essentially all of the elements that will factor into major compositions, if I were to play uh, a gigantic organ fugue, we would find that large sections of that organ fugue will go to the dominant and spend a lot of time in the dominant and then go spend a lot of time in the relative minor before returning to the subdominant before the end. And the question, obviously on everybody's mind, is how often did people in the Baroque ornament? And the answer is all the time, all the time. Uh, I'm meaning to make this episode a short one, so I'm going to end it very soon. But I should do a follow-up episode on how often people would ornament in Bach's day. I mean, you know, Baroque musicians, especially the harpsichord, is a lot more easy to ornament on, I would say, than the than the piano, just based on the lighter action. Even the modern Baroque musicians, I don't think... I don't think they embellish as much as the actual Baroque musicians would have in their day. You see these copies from Bach's students and his his circle of, of copyists, and when they try to show how the master played, they're squiggling all over the place. I mean, the thing looks like almost like beautiful uh, Arabic script over the top of the music notes. There's just such detailed ornaments. So I'll have to do a comparative version between something that would be passed down, transmitted by Bach, we would say in a fair copy, and then one of his student copies, which would show how one, one of the many ways that Bach would embellish probably extemporaneously, or certainly extemporaneously, we might say. Okay, so that is it for today. Thanks for listening to this short episode. I suppose we could call this a bonus episode. I don't know what that does to your podcast application. The next one, we've got a new sponsor for the podcast who will be sponsoring the next episode about organ music, and we will talk about it on the next one. Thanks for listening. Somebody who supports art and culture and music, well, you can do that with the WTF Bach podcast. Support on PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. You can find all relevant links in the episode description.